This morning, as we are continuing uh, to to, uh, make our way through the Gospel of Mark, which we are on track for finishing, uh, just leading up to to Advent, so just for another another couple months here, Uh, we're in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 37. Um, So let's... uh, Let's pray, though, as we, as we come and we, we hear and listen to God's word and what he has to say to us this morning. Lord, God, your word is seed which is sown upon our hearts. And for it to grow up and to take root and to, um, for the, the shoots to, to emerge... It needs watering. It needs your spirit. And so we ask that your spirit then would be present this morning, uh, moving forth as the words and the, of the, and the seed is sown, that your spirit would be uh, bringing life to that word, which would bring life to us as well. Uh, bring, bring hope, bring truth, uh, bring life out of barrenness so that we might see and understand more that you are the Lord our God, that we would know you as the Lord our God, that we would know you as the Lord our God through the person and work of Jesus who is presented here and given to us in this word. We pray this in his name. Amen. This is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 37. This is the word of God. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, being Jesus, uh, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Amen. Well, a while back, some time ago, I read the autobiography of Johnny Cash, uh, which was a fascinating read, even just in understanding the man, uh, hearing and reading about the stories of his life and of his career there. But it's also interesting because as I read, as I read it, it helped to explain the stories and some of the contexts behind some of his songs. 
Now, if you've, if you've heard or read something like that, where uh, the author of some sort of work gives insight into the background uh, behind their work, then you find there's something helpful and there's something even exciting about it. Right? Or when an artist interprets their paintings, uh, it gives a new depth of understanding to it all that you may not have, uh, when, that you may not have understood in the first place. And the same is here happening with Jesus. When Jesus interprets and when he explains his word, which is the word of God. Now, over and over, we've seen in Mark that he opens it up to us, to his audience. And for, for those people in those times, they thought that they knew God's word. They thought that they understood it. But Jesus, as he's talking and explaining with them here, he lifts a veil to their meaning and it blows them away. I think that this is the word of God, right? The word of God incarnate telling us about the meaning and depth of the written word of God. He shows how it's a word about him, how it's a story about God, which centers upon the, the redemption of, of humanity through the person and work of, of Jesus who came uh, to redeem helpless people who continue to fail. And he shows us its intentions. Right? He, he shows us how to read it. It's not a, a bunch of random passages about life or of different rules, but it's one big story. A story not primarily about us, but rather about how we find ourselves in God's one big story. Now, Jesus has been engaging throughout this chapter with the, the various religious leaders trying to catch them in, or as, as they've been trying to catch him in his words or through these hypothetical conundrums to discredit him before the people. But all they end up doing, though, is providing Jesus opportunities to demonstrate his own wisdom and his own command of the word and then for them to slink away in embarrassment. And there, we, we read here of a scribe who's been watching all of what's been going on here. He's been listening to Jesus engaging with these other religious leaders, and he is impressed with Jesus. He recognizes a wisdom in Jesus that, that none of the others have really seen. And so he asked Jesus a question in verse 28. Which commandment, Jesus, is the most important of all? And it's an opportunity for Jesus, again, to lead us back into God's word and to give us further explanation about it. But then we're given a bonus too because Jesus, when he's all done, turns back around here to the people and he asks them a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And it's again, it's one more time for him to open up the Old Testament to them. It's a beautiful thing. It's a gracious thing. Because for as complicated as the Old Testament can be in certain places, Jesus over and over gives explanations to us. He tells us how to interpret and how to read the word. And in doing so, he shows us a pattern. And the pattern consistently here puts himself at the center. Now, any other time we'd think that arrogance, like how can you take a story and then make it all about yourself, right? But the only way is if it's actually about you. And the Bible in the Old Testament here is a story of God's redemption. And Jesus is the center of that. And Jesus here this morning in this passage is serving as this grand interpreter of, of the word of God. And he draws out three truths about it here. Uh, he's going to talk about ethics, uh, doing what God commands. 
he's going to point out the Savior. So we'll see, see seeing how God saves. And then also he's going to point out the unkingship. Seeing who God enthrones. So ethics, Savior, and kingship. And so the first thing that we want to look at here that, that Jesus is, is, is elaborating on and explaining here from the word is the ethics, doing what God commands. What is it that God commands? And that's the, the question that the scribe has. Which commandment, Jesus, is the most important of all? Now, it seems here like an honest question, perhaps even a sincere question. For once now, someone's asking Jesus that because we don't have any real hint of a trap. He is impressed with Jesus' wisdom. He's impressed on how he's answered the, uh, the, 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 the Pharisees, the other religious leaders, the Sadducees. And so he has this, this question, and what's, what do you have to say about this, Jesus? Now, this is a question that wasn't uncommon. That was, it was oftentimes asked. The Old Testament was full, is full of commandments. All right, the Mosaic Law has 613 different laws contained in the whole law there. And so naturally then, there are questions on how to rank them. What are the more important? Are they all equally important? Which ones do we focus on first? Which, one, which are some laws that we can then get to eventually? And there were numerous rabbinic discussions on this topic. Which are the most important? How do we rank them? And so why did the scribe ask though? Why did he ask this question in the first place? Perhaps it's because it's a question that's reflected in human tendencies. Right? The typical focus that we oftentimes have, what's the most important thing? What do I need to do? Right? What is the most important thing that I need to remember? Right? And that's applicable for everything from cooking to gardening to learning a new sport to gaining a new skill. These are questions that are common to everyone also who's looking to God. What do I need to do? What is the most important thing that I need to do that the Bible outlines? And if you're trying to please God, what's the question that you're going to ask? It's this one here. What's the greatest, most important commandment? What do I need to do to get close to God, to please God? Now, Jesus doesn't just simply dismiss this idea of, 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 of importance, but rather what he does is he leads him to a commandment that is foundational in its importance. This is a foundational commandment that you need here. In other words, this one commandment that he gives is a summary of all of the law. And he points out Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. And it begins with uh, what's known as the great Shema. Shema means here because it begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that moves into the command, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What he's talking about here is a love which encompasses the whole person. With every part of your being. With your mind, with the intellect. With your heart, with your emotions. With your soul, with all of your innermost being and your desires and your will. With your strength, right? With your physical person. This is a whole person love for God. Loving him with all of that you are. Because of course then, love isn't just sentiment. Love, real love, brings forth actions then, doesn't it? The point of this here is that if you get this one right, if you get this commandment right, then you're going to get the others all right. They're all going to fall together. It's, 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 it's the, the overarching principle. And it acts kind of like a funnel. 
Right? All of the laws, all the commandments can be brought together and they can be funneled down into this one singular commandment. If you love God, then you'll do so by willingly doing all the other things that he has commanded. The effect here that Jesus is making and that's in this law is laying down one all-encompassing principle or laying down one commandment that is foundational and encompasses everything is far more effective than putting down innumerable specifics, right? Why do rebellious people love specific do's and don'ts? Because there's no way to account for every single scenario or every single specific, is there? Right? If you have kids, you know what I mean, right? Uh, I, I can think about this not only as a dad, but also when I spent some years as a teacher. You know, it never crossed my mind that I had to tell you not to do that, really, you got what up your nose? I didn't, I didn't think I had to tell you that. Right? But the idea is here is you lay out a principle, though. It doesn't allow for outs. that can be applied equally in all scenarios then. You don't have to get to all the specifics. You just say this. Love God. Love the Lord your God with all you are. Right? So how do I love God in this instance, in this moment here? How is, 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 is love happening from within? Well, it gets down here. It's not, you're not given an out. There's no specific love God in this time. This is what it looks like here. No, just love God and think about it as that foundational principle. Now, there are some really specific, some, some important specifics in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 that, that, that are helpful in continuing to orient us to what this passage really means. I mean, it begins there with, I said, with the great Shema, which, you know, begins with means, which means in Hebrew, hear. Hear, O Lord, or, or sorry, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that was repeated daily on the lips of the Jewish people because it set two headings for them. The first was it set a covenantal context for how they lived their lives. A covenantal conflict, or, uh, context. Because when it says, hear, O Lord, or sorry, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The name Lord there is the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God to Israel. It's a reference there to the covenantal relationship that they have, that they are bound together. Hear, O Israel, you are bound by the Lord, your God. That is the, you're bound by the covenant that, that, that he made and sealed with you all as he took them from their broken estate, as he redeemed them and set his name upon them. But it's not just a covenantal context. There's also an exclusive context. Because the, hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, our God, the covenantal God, the Lord Yahweh is one, or rather, he's the one. He's our only God. He is not only our only God, he is the only God. There are no other gods that exist. There are no other gods that can save you. There is no other God who has redeemed you. There is no other God who is worthy of giving yourself to. He, it is talking about exclusivity here. Why would you even want another God who isn't this covenant God? The one that you have relationship with. Now, these contexts help explain this commandment. Love God with all your whole person. He redeems the whole person. He claims the whole person. The motive of loving God then changes just from some mere simple obligation 
into loving him as 1 John says, loving him because he first loved us. And then that loving him alone because he alone is God. Nothing else is worthy of your love. No one else will love covenantally in return as God does. The essence of of all this is this. Showing our love to God goes more than mere affirmation, more than mere ritual or action. It is to love him with the whole person because he loves our whole person. But then Jesus, though, says there's a second. Seconds like it. And that would have been unexpected because they weren't, weren't they talking about the greatest command? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. And he says, oh, don't forget this. Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That first one's important. But we got another one here too. If Deuteronomy 6 acts like a funnel, then so also does Leviticus 19 here. Love your neighbor. It takes all the commands related to those around you, all in those horizontal spheres of the other people who you are with, And then it summarizes them also into one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus draws the two of them tightly together here. He binds them up here, makes them inseparable. That loving God means doing all that he commands, right? Love the Lord your God with all of who you are. And one of those things that he commands is love your neighbor. In fact, if you aren't loving your neighbor, then are you loving God? Says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do you care for yourself? You care for yourself physically. You have physical needs that need to be cared for. You take care of yourself. Uh, you, you, know, you, you, you feed yourself, uh, hopefully a good diet. Uh, you care for yourself emotionally. There are emotional needs that you have, and you want to make sure that you're settled there. We all have spiritual needs that we are, are concerned about the nurture and care for our spiritual needs. Uh, that's why we're, one of the reasons that we're here this morning. But you have needs to be met, right? And we care for ourselves by making sure that those needs are cared for. Well, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's, the, that's the law. In other words, go and do likewise for your neighbor as you would do for yourself. The care for your own personal needs and considerations that you would like for yourself is the commandment that God says that Jesus distills down to you, as he says, for those that are around you. Having a holistic love for the whole person. And like the first, the content to be applied then is for innumerable scenarios and circumstances, isn't it? Here's one for us. We can think about this briefly. Loving your neighbors here in this congregation... Now, the, for, for those of, of, of you who have been part of CVP for a long time, how much do you know those who are newer here? We have a lot of newer people. How much do you know? Like, how much do you really know some of the, the newer people that have been coming lately? Have you reached out to them? And we think about love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what it feels like to be new somewhere? It can be awkward, can't it? Yes, you know you might have to extend yourself, but it can be difficult sometimes, especially if you're not accustomed to it. How helpful, though, is it, though, when, when, when someone comes and extends themselves to you and welcomes you and introduces you and brings you in and befriends you? Friends, loving your neighbor as yourself is thinking about how might they be feeling here? 
If they're on the out, what can I do to bring them in? But see, love like this happens only when a new love is put into our hearts. As before, there's this covenantal context with all of this. We have God's steadfast covenant love. Now, do you know what that means? It's a word we talk about a lot of times. God's steadfast covenant love. What's that look like? What is it? How do you explain it? Well, it looks like this. Here's a picture of a husband and wife who are bound together in a covenant, a covenant of marriage. But the wife, though, over time becomes unfaithful. And actually it takes on multiple lovers and is repeated, uh, and, and repeated over and over and over again. But yet that husband does not abandon the covenant and let her go. He remains true. And he actually continues to, to have love for her. He is committed to her, not just being in the relationship in a formal sense, but is committed to having her as his only wife and to, to wooing her heart back to himself. And he will stop at nothing to reconcile them together and see her heart back into this all and exclusive to him. Friends, if you know the Old Testament, that's a story of Hosea. Of God being the faithful husband to Israel, to God's people who are unfaithful. But yet he's always there. And he says that he will bring them back. Friends, that is covenant love. That is God's covenant love. That even despite our unfaithfulness, our breaking the relationship, God is still there. God still cares about the relationship. And he, in his love, is acting to make us, to make our hearts grow and blossom in love so that there can be real, true communion with each other. Friends, it's God's covenant love to pull us from our sins, to pull us from our sinful inclinations and desires, and to rescue us from what we deserve, which is wrath for all of those sinful things. To rescue us from the self-destruction of our own lives. His covenantal love means that he is committed to the process. That we will be more like him. He's committed to the process by giving us the spirit. By making us more like him. And the spirit to cut away the stubbornness from our hearts to love him more. Until the day that we are perfected in glory. The people who have known love. People who know this sort of covenantal, steadfast love of God, they also in turn love. People who love have first known love because they have been loved. And this is the love of Christ here that we see for sinners, for unfaithful people. We have, we have, we have graciously received the love of the triune God himself and that works down into our, the human heart. It is a love that is absolutely undeserved, a love that would send Jesus Christ to the cross to lovingly bring us back into union. A love that, that remains steadfast through our own continued unfaithfulness. It is a love that is co committed to being at work within us and to change us and to reorder our desires. Now, admittedly here, the first, first point of this here is the longest of all, okay? This is not going to be an hour-long sermon. But the second point, though, that we want to see from what Jesus is bringing out here is seeing how God saves. Savior. Okay? 
the Savior. Now, the scribe here is listening to Jesus' responses, and he gives affirmation to all of what Jesus has said. He says, ah, teacher, you have truly said that he's one. Because the scribe here, like Jesus, understands what it is to truly please God. He knows from the Old Testament that God doesn't want ritual or ceremony. What he wants is obedience. He wants not religious obedience, though. He wants obedience that comes from the whole person, that comes from the heart. Israel was good at obedience in in one sense. They were good at obedience in a ritualistic, ceremonial sense of trusting in that. They weren't very good, though, in the wholehearted obedience as God really desired. He tells them multiple times in the Old Testament, don't give me your sacrifices. Don't give me your offerings and your religious actions if you're not actually going to really show your love for me through obedience. Ritual is too cheap of a savior. You just follow the instructions to appease God and then you get yourself back into a state of grace. That's that's the assumption. It's easy, but does it please God? He says that obedience from the heart and loving him with your whole person is worth more than the blood of a thousand bulls and goats. It doesn't give him what, what he really wants. He wants you. He wants all of you. And so ritual and ceremony is really just a cover to hide ourselves and not have to come face to face with our real issues being exposed. Now, of all the words that Jesus has had in the Gospels here, and all the words in Mark here that he's had with the religious leaders, here he gives the most positive response to the scribe. He says in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. He get, you get something that none of the others have yet figured out yet. You get what it is that God wants. He wants a whole person righteousness. He doesn't want your own righteousness cobbled together. He doesn't want you to parade around your own empty religious behavior without having any substance at the heart. He doesn't even just want your best efforts. If God has to work on our hearts, how really good are our best efforts, really? But this man, though, understood what God wanted. Jesus says, you're so close to the kingdom. You're standing at the door. But it's not enough to just stand there. To get into the kingdom, you actually have to walk through the door. How do you go through the door? By putting aside what you have and taking hold of Jesus. Taking hold of his hand and walking through. To look at Jesus as far more than just a wise, ethical teacher who teaches the best way to live, but instead to see him properly as also here, and most importantly, the Savior. Plenty of people throughout history have been floored by Jesus' ethical teachings, but Jesus is far more than just a teacher of the law. He is also the fulfillment of the law. This is what God demands here. The great commandments say, do them from the heart. Love the Lord your God with all of who you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there are two ways that you can live. There is living by law or there is living by by Christ. There's living by works or living by grace. Law says this, do this and you will live. Do this and you'll live. But the thing is, if that is your way of going through life, you will find nothing but death and despair if you're honest. Love the Lord, my my God, with all of who I am. Have I done that? Do I continue to do that? Love my neighbor as myself. Do I do that? 
So I continue to do that. But though, here's the good news. Jesus says, though, I did this, though. I did this so completely and thoroughly. So take what I have. Take my obedience. You've you've not been obedient. Take mine. I'm giving it to you. Jesus opens up the law to us and he brings us to our knees and then he completes it all for us. And he says, I will give it to you. All you need to do is rest in me and take what I have. Friends, you're going to live. And that's why the life of Jesus is just as important as the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus takes away our sin. It cleanses us. We're free from our sins, but God also demands righteousness. God also has commands. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean and tell us to go do it now on our own. Go fill it in. What is it that pleases God? Obedience and righteousness perfectly. What is it that pleases God? The righteousness of Jesus. And that righteousness, that perfect righteousness, that perfect wholehearted obedience that Jesus Christ lived is given to undeserving people so that they that too can be pleasing in his sight. See, learning to live as a Christian means getting comfortable in his robes, in wearing his robes of righteousness, wearing his obedience. It covers us. We're wearing it. He puts it upon us here. He covers over our own, but we don't quite know how to live in them yet. I mean, they're beautiful robes. What if we soil them? What if we rip them? What if we tarnish them in some way? It's a robe that fits, but, and it fits good, but I'm not quite accustomed to the fit. They're so beautiful that maybe we feel awkward or that we're not worthy to wear something this nice. But over time, though, as we live As we learn to live in them and move in them, they feel more natural to us. And we can start to walk in confidence of what Jesus has given us. The third thing that Jesus pulls out here then, how Jesus interprets the word is about kingship. Kingship, seeing who God enthrones. Now it's Jesus' turn to start asking questions. And he asks a question over interpreting the matter of who is the Christ. In verse 35, how can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David, the Messiah? How can they say the Christ, the Messiah, this one that you've been looking for, the one that Israel has been, has been looking for for all this long, who's going to be sent from God to redeem Israel? How, can he, how is he the son of David? Okay, he says he's supposed to be this one, this great king from the line of David, echoing this great kingdom that he had before. But in what sense, though, is he the son of David? His question is, what does it mean that he's the son of David? And this is a question that has kingship at the center. How, is the, how does the Messiah relate to David? Right, a son taking the throne? Well, what sort of throne are we talking about? If he's a descendant of David, then how is he also called Lord? Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which is a psalm written by David. And it begins, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now we think, what does that mean? The Lord said to my Lord. What's important for us to realize is that when this was written here, or when Psalm 110 was written in Hebrew there, there are two different words for Lord. And in the Hebrew there, it, it's actually reflected, if you, if you can turn into your, uh, Psalm 110 in your own Bibles, if you have one, you'll see the Lord in capitals said to my Lord. When you see those capitals, that's referring to the name Yahweh, that covenantal name. 
So in other words, so, so the, the other word that you have there for Lord, for my Lord, is, is Adonai, which is a more general word. So you have, you have there essentially, Yahweh said to Adonai, or the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord. The covenant God says to my Lord. They, okay, what's going on here? Well, this is the point. There are three people in this psalm. You have David as the author. You have the Lord God, the covenant God. And then you have this other one, my Lord. Someone whom David looks up to as being greater than him. So the Lord Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God, David says, says to my Lord, who's also divine in the sense. Jesus opens up this psalm to get them think about what sort of king or kingdom is it that they're looking for. Now clearly he's saying this psalm isn't about David. These are impressive qualifications of the Christ, right? This is, it says, Lord, talk about this divine rule, sit at my right hand, the covenant Lord says, that, uh, that seat of power and authority. Now, David is looking down the line to him, a son of his, but he's also looking upwards to him as well. He's looking upwards here as, as, as the Lord God, the covenant God, Yahweh, is telling David's Lord to sit at his right hand, the right hand of God, of the covenant Lord, the, the, the right hand of his supremacy, of his divine exaltation, of this, this godly authority here. And he says, all enemies will be put at his feet. This is no, more, this is no mere human figure that he's talking about. He's talking about this is a transcendent divine ruler and he's getting them to think, okay, now, who is it that you're looking for? Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah that you're looking for? Is it only, are you only looking for a, a, a ruler like a man or are you looking for a divine ruler without an earthly kingdom but a divine ruler? One who gives a heavenly kingdom. One who is far greater than David, not only in territory and power, but far greater than David even in his character, bearing divine character himself. Now think about this here. When Jesus tells that scribe before, you're not far from the kingdom. This is the kingdom that you should be looking to. A kingdom that is ruled by a divine king, by this Messiah at the right hand of God. See, Jesus has them think about a king that they really need. A king not that they anticipated, but a king like Jesus who, who he came to be. A king as spoken as for by, by the Lord God. See, glory and triumph from Jesus isn't earthly if he's this sort of king. It is far better than anything. It is Jesus as king being exalted in glory. Jesus as king who is given highest authority over all things. Jesus as king, under his feet are all enemies subdued, including ours. Including the enemies of sin and death and whatever else it is that hounds you. Jesus is the divine king, a king who came to us. The eternal son who came to us to be exalted and to bring glory to people who have been left helpless in the dirt. If Jesus has this authority... If he has this subjection over his enemies, then yours are no, no different. Whatever enemy that it is that you're facing, whatever idol your heart is chasing after that threatens to destroy you, whatever the deepest fear that you might have 
The darkest regret or failure that you feel, even death itself, all of that has been conquered and subdued beneath the feet of Jesus Christ. He is a king with the power and the authority of God to defend you and to cover you in protection so that you can find shade in the shadow of his throne. Jesus has opened his word up to you this morning. Not just the mere context to the word, but the content itself and the content himself. He's opened up his word about himself to you all. And so what will your response be this morning? Will it be to reject that word? Will it be to simply find it interesting, but ultimately uncompelling or without any power to change your heart? Or desire to change your heart? Or will you look at it and hear it with love and to trust? Friends, I hope it's the last one. Let's pray. Lord God, the commands that you give us are hard and difficult. They stretch to, to the very center of who we are, of our beings. And it brings us to our knees. What you desire, what you demand is so much. But you deserve it all. You deserve every single bit of it. You as the highest good, the fountain of all beauty, the sovereign over everything. What more? Giving, giving our love to anything less than you is not only offensive to you, but it is just ridiculous. Father, bring us to our knees, though. And show us, though, that in that, yet you are still that covenantal God. You are a God who brings us back despite our faith, our unfaithfulness. Change our hearts. Show us the love of Jesus and continue to put that love in our hearts there. And work in us further and further so that we might love you more and that we might love others more. Prepare our hearts as we come to the table to see your love again for us here. In Jesus' name, amen.